Well, it's great to have everyone here today, and as I look outside, I see a few rain clouds. I'm glad you overcame the temptation to stay home, because that's what we're going to talk about today, overcoming temptation. So you're already halfway there, so you're off to a good start. If you will, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, and also to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And as we're talking about overcoming temptation, overcoming temptation starts with an understanding of temptation. Overcoming temptation starts with an understanding of temptation. Look in Genesis chapter 2, and let's look in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and to, to tend it and to keep it. Okay, So the Garden of Eden has already been put in place. There's some information about the Garden of Eden, where it's located and things like that. And then God comes along, puts man inside the Garden of Eden, and notice what he says to him. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may, eat, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Not that hard to understand, is it? Okay, Adam, I'm putting you in this garden. All the other fruit you can have of this particular tree, don't eat. If you do, you die. Any questions? Not hard, is it? Now pop over to chapter 3, and we see the first temptation of mankind. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. Notice how it describes him. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, that your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eye and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a covering. Lord Jesus, God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And Lord, as we go and, and talk about temptation today, Lord, I know it's a very sensitive topic. And Lord, if there's anyone here that's breathing and living, then we experience temptation on a regular basis. Nobody here is immune to that. But Lord, as we dig in and we discover some things concerning this first temptation, I pray that it will give us what we need in order to, come to, tempta- to overcome the temptations in our own lives, Lord. And we thank you for it. We ask you the blessings on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever had um, uh, somebody come up to you and say, Hey, great, that's wonderful. I'm glad you're able to help out. You're going to be a blessing. And you're standing there like, what are you talking about? And you dig, dig a little bit deeper and you find out you had a conversation with somebody who had a conversation with somebody who had another conversation with somebody and from that they volunteered you for something you had no idea what you're going to be volunteering for. And it's all based on that misunderstanding of the conversation. Or maybe uh, somebody has distorted or misrepresented the words that you said to mean something that you never intended to say. 
Sometimes by accident, sometimes by purpose. It happens. I sometimes get in trouble when I use text and email. I can write something, and depending on the mindset of the other person on the other side, they may totally misinterpret what I have to say. Misconstrue it. It happens. Have you ever got one of those texts and somebody wrote you and you had to look at it and you're like, I don't know how to take that. I'm not sure what they're saying here. It happens. Words are important. And so notice this. When the intent of the words is misconstrued, the truth of those words are lost. When the intent of the words is misconstrued, then the truth of those words are lost. I'm going to put my teaching hat on here for just a moment. I'm going to sound very, very smart. You ready? All right. And I've got it up on the, the screen as well so you can follow along with me. The theory and the method of interpret, interpreting the Bible is called, are you ready for it? Hermeneutics. You impressed? Say it with me. Hermeneutics. Oh my goodness. I feel so blessed just to be in your presence right now. You guys sound so smart. Hermeneutics. There are many different theories in regards to hermeneutics. One uh, at the end of the spectrum is you have uh, a, a literal interpretation. Everything in the Bible is literal. This is what it says. This is what it means. And then you have the other spectrum uh, where is uh, what we call a reader's response hermeneutics. Basically, you go through and you read the Word of God, and whatever it means to you, well, that's how you interpret it. Okay, we're not talking about application. We're talking about interpretation. Usually, there's generally only one interpretation, but you can have many applications. But some will go and read the Bible and say, well, this is how I interpret it because this is what it means to me. Okay, on one side, uh, the problem you have when you take everything literal, whenever Jesus says, I am the bread of life, you kind of picture a uh, piece of toast walking around with arms, legs, and heads in a halo. Whenever, it's, whenever the scriptures say that, that we are to be a light in this world, you have Christians running around with like flashlights coming out of their head, right? Of course not. When you take common sense into it, there's things that the Bible says that we are not necessarily going to take literally. Common sense tells us that. But the problem often happens on the other side. When you have people go and read the Word of God, and they say, well, this is what I believe it means to me. Because when you do that, you can make the Bible say pretty much anything you want it to say. And so we have to be very careful with our hermeneutics. The words of God are very important, but they must convey the meaning that God intended them to mean. Okay? When one starts taking the words of God and starts manipulating them to mean something God never intended, well, then that message becomes false. This is why we stress good hermeneutics when it comes to Bible study. And why do we want to do that? Because we can take a, a passage of Scripture like we're going to do today, uh, the, the Garden of Eden, uh, first man and woman, and we can look at that, we can analyze that, and we can see all the aspects of it, and we get those principles within the context of that, and then the reason why we do that is so we can pull it out, and we can come here in the 21st century and say, what does it mean to us? How can I take that and apply it to our life today? Back then, perfect garden. Everything's wonderful, everything's great. Mankind no longer lives in a perfect world. And I know dial-up is, is very close, but it's not perfect, okay? We don't live in a world where everything is provided for us. Back then, the Garden of Eden, God said, there it is, it's all there, you don't have to work for it, it's all yours. Today, that doesn't happen. We don't live in a world where we don't have to be concerned for others because our world doesn't revolve around us. We are not the center of the universe, even though some may believe they are. It's not true. 
This world is inhabited by others as well, and, and they, we have to be considered to them whenever we start making decision makings. If I come out on Monday morning and I want to do some woodworking, and I get up early in the morning and I crank up my saws and I start ripping boards, guess what? Evie next door, the little girl next door, she's probably going to be in bed sleeping. If I wake her up, her mom's going to be very angry with me going to be mad at me. I have to take that into consideration. I have to consider others. Adam and Eve didn't have to do that. They could walk around naked. Nobody would care. They didn't have to please anybody. They didn't have to worry about anybody else. They were there alone. And though our world has changed significantly from that time, he is still the same old devil. Oh, I'm sure he's got a few more tricks up his sleeve. But he is still going around tempting people in our world today. And as we look at this first temptation of mankind, we see the devil masterfully manipulating God's message to Adam and Eve, therefore causing them to sin against God. And this morning, what I want to do, I want to go back to the, the temptation, the very first temptation. I want to dissect it for you. And the reason for this is when we understand the temptation and the steps of temptation, it gives us a, a better understanding how, how it works and then therefore how we can overcome that temptation as well. All right? So when those temptation time comes, think about this. Now, why do we do that? Well, I don't know if we have any tennis fans in here. Go Federer. But we just finished up tennis not too long ago. And Jim Currier would come out on the, uh, uh, on the court, and he would talk to the uh, player that just won, and they would talk about things leading up to the game. They would talk about the game itself. And then he would do something very interesting. He would talk about the next opponent. And uh, you got somebody like Federer. And you go and ask him a question like that, man, he's amazing. He'll go and say, yeah, I saw him in the second round. He played this guy. And he, in the third round, he played this guy. And this was his weaknesses. This is his strength. This is one of the things. That, and and he, he's got a complete analysis of his opponent. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he's so good. He's got the talent, but he knows his opponent. And probably even more clear, if you are familiar with gridiron over in the States, they have like maybe five or different uh, ten different plays for the offense and the, defeat and, the, and the defense. And if the opposition can get a hold of that playbook, well, they can defeat them probably quite easy because they already know what they're going to do in advance. And so what I want to do here this morning is I, wanna, I don't want to give you the devil's playbook. I want to give you just a page out of it. I want to give you a, a page out of the devil's playbook here because this is a long time since Adam and Eve, and he's probably perfected his temptation since then. But let's have a look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, to see our first step in temptation. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Here is step one in temptation, is maximizing the restriction. Maximizing the restrictions. If you've got your notes, write that down. Maximizing the restrictions. The devil oftentimes likes to embellish what God says to us to make it seem unreasonable. Uh, the media is, a, is, is masterful at this. This is probably why the media is of the devil. They're a master at this. They will go and take somebody's uh, comments and they'll take them out of context and they usually have some picture where they got them halfway in a sentence with some ha tongue hanging out or something stupid to kind of go with it to make them look quite silly. But if you were actually to listen to that, con that comment in the context in which it was said, it probably doesn't seem that silly. It doesn't seem that, 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 that far off. And this is what they do. And this is exactly what the devil does. He goes and takes God's word and he twists it to make it sound so unreasonable. 
God says, thou shalt not do this. God says, thou shalt not do that. Well, you know what? God just don't want you to have any fun. I mean, God's been up in heaven uh, for eternity. He's bored with life. He wants you to be just as bored as he is. He don't want you to have any fun. Let me give you an example. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Be separated. Now, some have come to the conclusion that I can't hang around unbelievers because of that. They have maximized the restrictions. They have to remain separated from them. They have to remain in their own little Christian circle, their Christian bubble. They can't hang out with anybody who is an unbeliever. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you are to be in the world, but not of the world. In fact, Paul picks up on this idea when he says, look, if you're going to be separated from, from unbelievers, the only way you're going to be able to do that is to actually physically get out of this world. We're going to come in contact with unbelievers. That's part of life. That's part of living here. And what we need to do is we need to be salt and light. We don't become like them. We want to become close to them in order to reach them for Jesus Christ. And that's one example of how Satan can maximize the restrictions that God has laid down for us in our lives. Now, why did Satan ask the question? Well, he obviously knew that God had uh, said uh, what God had said to Adam and Eve. Um, he, he wouldn't have been able to ask the question otherwise. And so whenever God is speaking to, to, to Adam and giving him the commands that we just read in, in chapter 2, the devil was there. He heard everything that was going on. That's why he was able to ask the question. And in addition, he deliberately distorted what God had said. Is it really a fact that God has prohibited you from eating of all the trees in the garden? Here's Satan's ploy. It's obvious. He is getting Eve to take her eyes off of all the things that God has given her to enjoy and focus on the one thing that is forbidden. There's probably a thousand of pleasurable things that Eve could have done in the garden, and now all of her attention is focused on the one thing that she cannot do. Eve, I mean, did God say you really couldn't eat all the fruit of the garden? Oh, we can eat of this fruit, we can eat of this fruit, we can eat of all that fruit there, but this one tree right here, we can't eat of. Do you see what he's doing? He's focusing her attention on the one thing that she cannot have. In our world, we have people out there that have plenty of money, but yet they feel the need, the need to embezzle more money. There always seems to be that temptation to want that which you do not have, despite the fact that what you have is sufficient. You can tell your kids, you can go to the store and go to the lolly shop or go to the ice cream shop, and you can say, all right, kids, come on in here. You can have this, 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 and this, but you can't have that. What do they want? That which they can't have. And what do you do as a good parent? Thank you very much. Let's go. You get nothing. Surely you don't sit there and negotiate with your kids, right? And surely you don't give in and give them what they want just to shut them up, right? I know you guys don't do that. You're, you're, you're wonderful parents, good parents. But we see that in our world. He maximizes the restrictions in order to draw our focus on that which is forbidden. Now let's look at the next passage of Scripture. In uh, verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the free fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Interesting. At least you die. Did God say not to touch it? Where did they come up with that idea? 
Maybe Adam and Eve were having a conversation out in the garden, and Eve said, and, and Adam said, you know what, Eve? God said we can't eat of this tree, and if we can't touch it, then we can't eat it, right? And so maybe we shouldn't touch it. Maybe that's where she got the idea from. I don't know. But she said, you shall not touch it, lest she die. And notice how the serpent responds to the woman. He says, you will not surely die. Here we find step two, and that is minimizing the consequences. Minimizing the consequences. Oh, come on, Eve, you will not surely die. I mean, look at you. There's no one else created like you. You're one of a kind. God's not going to allow you to die. Come on, let's be real. Minimizing the consequences. He does that in two ways. First of all, he he did this by telling Eve that the consequences of sin would not be as bad as God had stated. It's not going to be that bad. Hey, listen, you're not going to get in trouble. Just have a little fun. It's, it's just the first time. You can't get hooked on the first time. Hey, come on, everybody's doing it. Hey, I've been doing this for six months. I never got caught. Hey, look, your spouse isn't here right now. They'll never know. Your spouse is going to be gone for a week. Hey, look, let's just get together for a week, and when they come back, we'll pretend like nothing happened. It'll be all right. Nobody will ever find out. And so what? You have a right to be happy anyway. We minimize the consequences. Let me tell you something about sin. Open up that filing cabinet up here. I want you to put this one away because I want you to remember it. And I'll tell you this over and over and over again every chance that I get. Sin will take you further than you want to go, will keep you longer than you want to stay, and will cost you more than you want to pay. You think about the sin in your life, and you know that's true. Sin will take you further than you want to go, will keep you longer than you want to stay, and will cost you more than you want to pay. Now notice the second way he minimizes the consequences. By focusing her attention so completely on the tree that she forgets about those consequences. You see her focuses on the fruit. She's not thinking about the consequences. She's got her eyes on the prize. She's not thinking about anything else. It's kind of like people walking and texting today. There is a danger of being on your phone and walking. In fact, Research has shown that the part of your brain that focuses on your peripheral vision is what's used up as you are texting on your phone. And so literally, as you are texting on your phone, you have no peripheral vision. And if you're not careful, this can happen. And so that's quite embarrassing for those people. And so let me encourage you, please do not text and walk because you will find yourself getting wet, getting into trouble. All right, that's enough of that. All right, you got the point. Our focus sometimes is, is on that which, is, which we want. We forget about the consequences. And in fact, this is why they make and make TV shows about the world's dumbest criminals. If you go and see some of those shows, where you, you look at that, why did you not see that? How can you not see that? The reason for it is because they're so focused on that which they want, they don't have a clue what's going on around them. It happens. And this is a ploy of Satan as well. Now let's jump into to, uh, verse 5 and see the next one. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing 
good and evil. Here is step three, and it's mislabeling the action. Mislabeling the action. Here's Satan's ploy. Satan has planted the suspicion in Eve's mind that God had forbidden her to eat the fruit, not because it would injure her, but because he did not wish for her to be like him. You ever watch the shopping channel? You see that tool comes up on the screen, and you're like, hey, that's kind of a cool tool. I'm, I, I could probably use that. I like to have that. And then they go and say, hey, you know, people will pay thousands of dollars for this, but you can have it right now for $59.99. Ooh, okay. Got my attention. And then they go and they show you about 158 different attachments that go with this tool. And then you're really on the edge of your seat like, oh, wait, hang on, this is good. And then just for you, just for you, viewers today, if you call right now, we'll double it. Honey, where's the phone? You know, you got to have it. They make you think that life just isn't worth living if you don't have this tool. If you have a job to do, it's just not going to be sufficient if you don't have this tool to work with. They make you want that which you don't have. And that's a ploy of Satan. Satan skillfully tries to remove the temptation from the category of sin by mislabeling it. In this particular instance, partaking of the fruit was relabeled as a way of expanding her consciousness. She would become a more complete person if she tried it just once. Before this time, Eva thought of the forbidden action as disobedience. Now, she saw it as a necessity if she were to become complete and mature person. You see how Satan works? Sound familiar? Oh, look, if you really love me, you would do this for me. Oh, if you're a real man, you could do this. Don't be a wuss. Everybody's doing it. You're not normal if you don't do it. The temp this temptation mislabels sin in such a way that you become so conscious about it, you cannot live without it. You must have it. Let's look at the next verse to see the next step. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Let's stop there. Here we have find step four. Mixing good with evil. Mixing good with evil. Satan quickly added another step here. And we call it mixing good with evil. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. C.S. Lewis has commented that evil is often a perversion of something good God has created. Think about that. Evil is often a perversion of something good that God has created. In this instance, Satan added potency to his temptation by mixing good with evil. Eve saw that the, the fruit of the tree was good. I mean, just look at it. Compared to all the other fruit around here, just look at it. It's got a little bit more shine. It's got a little bit more color. And just, just touch it. Just feel it. Ooh, look at that. It's firm. Oh, I've got to have that. We apply that to today. Sex is good in the context of marriage. But you take it out of the context of marriage, it can become evil. Medicines, it can be good. But when you misuse it and abuse it, that action becomes evil. Hey, church can be good. 
But when the church has become lukewarm, even Christ himself said, I'm disgusted with you, I spew you out of my mouth. The devil is a master of taking that which is good and distorting it so that it becomes evil. There are plenty of perfect fruit in the garden. By drawing her attention to that one forbidden fruit, all of a sudden, that forbidden fruit becomes more and more attractive than the rest. Look at in verse 6. We find the next step. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, notice that, that it was pleasant to the eyes, here we find our fifth step of temptation. Masking sin with beauty. Masking sin with beauty. Temptation often comes wrapped in some form of something beautiful, something that appeals to the senses and desires. It is often uh, necessary to think twice before we recognize that that beautiful object or that beautiful goal is really sin in disguise. Eve failed to discriminate between the beautiful packaging and the sinful contents of that package. This is why we pray for discernment. Everything that glitters is not gold. And even truth may be a lie in disguise. This is how Satan works. He uses deception. Now, if I were to stand before you here today and I said, look, I'm 180 centimeters. Most of you would probably look at me and say, yeah, that's pretty close. And I, uh, you have no reason to doubt me. Uh, and so you probably would agree and say, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds good. After all, we are in church. I'm standing before a congregation. I'm standing in the pulpit. standing before God. Ananias and Sapphira, remember that? They lied in church. What happened to them? So chances are he's probably not going to lie to us, but the truth of the matter is, is I'm not 180 centimeters. Wait for it. Okay. I am 175.26 centimeters. <laughs> the measurements were so close to the truth that you wanted to believe it. However, it was still a lie. That's deception. Satan exposes you to, the, to just enough truth that you want to believe it. But yet it's a lie. False prophets were plenty in the time of the apostles and their message would carry just enough truth that those that were listening would want to believe it. But they were a lie. They were false. And this is a tactic that we see today. People will come and knock on your door and they will tell you they believe in Christ. They will tell you that they believe the Bible. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you find out that their concept of Christ and their concept of the Bible is totally different than yours. Back in the old days, before they had computers and special pens, it was up to the bank tellers to figure out what was counterfeit what was not. And what they would do, they would take these bank tellers, they would put them in a room, and they would show them the one true bill over and over again. They would expand it. They would show them all the intricacies of that, that one true bill. They would show them both sides, and they would learn what that one true bill looks like. And whenever they're standing there at the teller, and somebody tries to pass off a fake bill, immediately they recognize, hey, there's something different here. It just doesn't look like what I remember. And when we get into the Word of God and we study the Word of God and we learn the truth of God's Word, when somebody comes up to us and they tell us something and we got our little spidey senses going off and we're saying, hey, look, that doesn't sound right. Something seems a bit off. Well, that's important to go back to the, the truth of God's Word and see if it measures up. Because there are a number of counterfeits today. When we study the truth, we are less inclined to be full of the beautiful wrapping of false beliefs. 
Now let's move on to our last step found in this verse as well. In verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, notice this bit, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave it to her husband and he ate. Here's where we find step number six of temptation. Misunderstanding the implications. Misunderstanding the implications. In essence, she swallowed the devil's lie. Although this may seem a less significant point in the temptation process, it is perhaps probably the most crucial point of the process. In effect, by accepting Satan's statement, Eve was calling God a liar. Though she may not have recognized those implications of her action. She was calling God a liar. She accepted Satan's true as a truth teller and God as the deceiver. By partaking of the fruit, she was implicitly stating her belief that Satan was more interested in her welfare than God was. Yielding to that temptation applied that she accepted God's, uh, uh, Satan's analysis of the situation rather than God's. And we see that in our own behavior as well, don't we? When God warns us not to do something and we go and do it anyway, we're not just sinning. We're essentially saying that God doesn't have our best interests in mind. If we believe that nothing will happen to us and we go and do it our way and do it, do it anyway, regardless of what Christ said, regardless of what God says, then we call him a liar. Because God says, your sins will find you out. It'll happen. May not be immediately, but your sins will find you out. We, can, we, we misunderstand the implications. Every action has a consequence. Now listen, you're free to choose your actions. Absolutely. Do anything you want. You're free to choose your actions. But you're not free to choose the consequences of those actions. And that's why those consequences need to be considered before we act. Some have said if we could understand the consequences of our actions before we commit the actions, and chances are we probably wouldn't do it. If we could bear the brunt of our consequences before we act out in sin, chances are we would never go there. Listen, don't think that you're an exception to the rule either. Don't think that you're not going to be bothered by this. Don't think that you're uh, better than everybody else, and therefore you're not going to be tempted in those areas. Many of the steps of Eve's temptation are often uh, uh, present in Satan's temptations of believers today. With only a brief look at our own lives, we can recognize his tactics of minimizing the restrictions, uh, maximizing the restrictions, minimizing the consequences, mislabeling the action, mixing good with evil, masking sin with beauty, and misunderstanding the implications. All of that operating in our lives today. And I'm afraid in society, we've minimized sin so much to the point that our little sins have simply become part of life. Ah, what's a big deal? It's just a little one. And we dismiss it. Telling lies is now just telling a little fib. Homosexuality is an alternative lifestyle. Adultery is just friends with benefits. Lust is just enjoying God's wonderful creation. 
Idolatry is just covering all your bases spiritually. Sin is so prevalent in our society that, 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 that giving in to one's temptation is all just a part of life. In fact, it's even gone beyond that. Now they say, it's my right. I got a right to be happy. I got a right to do whatever I want with my body. It's their right. Understand Satan's playbook here this morning. See the signs of temptation before you were overcome with that temptation. And if you're prepared and ready to defend, then you have a great, greater chance of survival. 1 Corinthians 10.13 it's a great verse to memorize. Put it down. Highlight it in your Bible. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. I hear people talking about, Well, Dwayne, you just don't understand. You've never been tempted the way that I'm tempted. You just don't understand. And they excuse their reactions on the basis that I've never been tempted like them. Well, what does the Scripture say here? There is no temptation overtaken you except such as the common demand. There's been people before you that has been tempted just like you were, and you know what? They overcame. So you can't use that as an excuse. Why? Because God is faithful. Not man. God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that you are able, but will with the temptation, will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Powerful verse. Do you know why we sin when we fall into temptation? Because we want to. And I know the devil gets blamed for a lot of that. You know, the devil made me do it. You hear all that. The devil gets blamed, but the reality is it's not the case. We put ourselves in, the, in those situations. It's kind of like the man who who needed to lose weight, and because every time he went to and from work, there was a donut shop, and he always stopped in the morning to get a donut and coffee, and on the way back, he stopped and get a donut and coffee, and, and, and God has been just, just saying, hey, look, you know, you got to stop that. And it's convicting him. But yet, that temptation was so great. And so, he, he, he quit for a while, and on the way home one day, he had a bad day, and he's like, oh, man, just for coffee and donuts. Oh, God, help me. God, I've been pretty good. So God, if I drive by that donut shop and there's a parking space that's open right at that front door, then I know it's your will for me to have a donut and a coffee. And after about five laps around the block, a parking space comes open. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, wonderful. We do that. We put ourselves in harm's way. We go behind closed doors and we click on those links that we know we shouldn't be going to. And sometimes the internet's slow. God's giving you an opportunity to think about it before you get to that stage. Yeah? Or we go past that person's house, out of our way past that person's house, knowing that there's nothing good going to come of it. Or we go and hang out with our friends that we always get in trouble with, but yet we seem to continue to go back there time and time again. We put ourselves in that situation. It's not necessarily the devil making us do it. As we go through these steps of ease temptation, maybe God has brought to mind a few of your own. 
Maybe God's saying, you know what? That's something you're dealing with. You know what? That, that's that sin that so easily besets you. That you can't seem to overcome. It happens time and time and time again. Let's put those temptations on the altar here this morning. Let's give those temptations over to God this morning. Go back through each of these steps and see if one of those steps is the very thing that, that you've been dealing with on a consistent basis. And once identified, I want you to ask God to help you overcome it this week. I'm going to ask musicians to come. And we're going to have just a moment of prayer. It's not going to be long. But I want to give you the opportunity while they are playing to really think about the message here this morning. And if there's something that God has, has spoken to your heart about, if there's that temptation that you're dealing with and you're struggling with, I want you to take the time to bow your head here this morning and I want you to pray and I, I want you to ask God, God, help me overcome that temptation. God, help me overcome that sin. Your word says that there is no temptation taking you such as common to men, but you will make a way of escape. God, help me see the way of escape. Don't leave me here, Lord. Allow me to get victory and to overcome this temptation and sin in my life. Ask God to give you discernment, eyes of discernment, so that you can overcome. And if that's a struggle for you, if you're continuing to sin in the area of your life, then maybe you need to consider getting an accountability partner. Maybe you need to find somebody, hey, you know what, I admit, I can't do it on my own. I need somebody to hold my hand and to help me out with this. I need somebody that when that temptation comes, when that desire to come, I can call up on the phone and say, man, I'm struggling. Great, I'll be over. Let's get a coffee. Let's have a time of prayer. I'm there. I'm here with you. Don't do it. Encourage them. Think about that temptation here this morning. And let's give it over to God. Let's have a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, I look out at this congregation and Lord, I don't know what each individual person is dealing with. And Lord, it's not just one temptation that can overcome all of us. The devil has many tactics and many things that can tempt us. And what works for one may not work for another. So Lord, I have no idea what each and every person is going through here today, but you do. Lord, you know the temptations they face. You know the struggles that they have in life. But God, you're faithful. And you've always provided a way of escape. In fact, if we were to go back and look at our lives, and we were to, to, to identify those sins in our life, we can also go back and see, you know what? There was a way of escape. There was a way out. I just chose not to take it. God, help us see that. Give us eyes of discernment. Help us to live holy lives, Lord, before you. And Lord, those that need the assistance, I pray that you would give them the boldness and the courage that they need to go and find somebody they can trust that can help them through these times of temptation in their life. God, have your Holy Spirit convict us. And if there's any wicked way in us, God, help us to see it so that we can go and we can confess those things to you so that we can live a life that we should in honor and glory of you. And we thank you for it. And we ask it all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.